to chapter 18. Ha! Huh. 81 sermons later, we're in chapter 18, and we still have a ways to go before we get to the end. Uh, and then we're going to be doing some sermon series. I'll tell you all about that later as we get closer. But this is very unique, this passage. I'm going to tell you a little history in just a moment, but let me just say this. 24 parables totally in Luke, right? 18 are unique to Luke. They're only in Luke's gospel. But at this point in Luke's gospel, there's only three left. Do you know what that says? There's not much time left for the Lord Jesus. He's running out of time. He's getting closer and closer to the cross. We're just a few months away, weeks away. We're, we're close to the cross. So remember this. If you were to be with somebody who, was, who, who, who you knew and they were, they were passing on and they were saying some things to you, those final words become very important, right? They become very meaningful. And that's, that's, that makes sense. Imagine that now from the Lord Jesus Christ's perspective. These are his final words. You know, his final public words in the Gospel of John, you know what they were? It was on judgment. The very final words in John, chapter 12. His final public message was judgment. And you don't hear a lot about judgment today in the church. You just don't. But it's, it's real. And, and so we have to deal with it. So this is an important passage. We could, we could miss the depth of the passage if we stop at verse 1, and we'll see that in just a moment. So instead of titling this, if you go online, you could see something that says something like this, Persistent Prayer, and you'll see that all over the end. You can find sermons on that. I have a different title, The Witness of the Persistent Widow, because I think there's something really deep here that Jesus is teaching. And remember, you have to keep it in its context. How are you supposed to come to the Scriptures? You have to be very careful. You can't just come and take a passage and read a passage and go, okay, Jesus taught them how to pray, and that's, that's what the whole thing is. You can't do that. You take, you take a passage out and you take a look at it. It's, if, if, if it's a brick in a wall, then you put the brick back in the wall. Then you look at the surrounding material. Then you look at the entire chapter. Then you look at the book. Then you look at the book in light of the entire Bible. This one here, it comes on the heels of the second coming. If you weren't here last week, we talk about the second coming. Remember? Remember the video clip from Terminator? I'll be back. Remember that? Okay, that's what Jesus says. I'm coming back. But in light of that, we see this great messianic term, son of man. We saw it last week in 17. We see it now right here at the beginning of 18. In the original Greek, there were no chapter breaks. There were no, no numbers, no verses. This was all one word, okay? So we have to be careful when we break these up into chapters and we miss something. This is, this is not just about persistent prayer. It's about what you're actually persistently praying for. This is eschatological. I know it's a big word. Just say end times. That's all that means. What does that mean for history? History is coming to an end. Many people think history is cyclical. It's not. It's linear. It's going to come to an end. When? When Jesus returns. And that's what this whole prayer is all about. It's what the whole parable is about. Okay? That is a background. We good? 18, 1 to, 1 to 8. Ready? Here now. The Word of God. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray together. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel. Speak only your words from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds, and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and Him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, the witness of the persistent widow. There's, there's three things. Let me give you the three headings and I'll just touch on the first verse so that we can be clear. Number one, there's a contrast. This is a, it's important how we unpack this parable so that we don't make any mistakes. There's a contrast in this. We want to make sure that we're not comparing the unjust judge to the just judge. It's a contrast. Then number two, there is a comparison. We have to find what that is in the parable. Then number three, there's a cry. Okay? But here's something that I want you to keep in mind. The Lord's Prayer. When the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, what, is, what, is he, what does he give them? Gives them the Lord's Prayer. So if you unpack that, what do we find in the Lord's Prayer is one of the principal prayers. Thy kingdom come. So the question before the house is this. When was the last time you prayed that? And I don't mean just the Lord's Prayer or certainly praying it rotely over and over and over again. I'm saying really prayed for the kingdom to come. You know, many Christians who believe, obviously, in the second coming and, and look forward to Jesus returning will often say this in conversation that I have with them. So you're excited about Jesus coming? You ready for him tonight? Well, I, I wouldn't mind if you waited a few weeks. I got a few more things to get done. Is that your prayer? Or is it thy kingdom come? And that's what this widow's praying. She's praying for the kingdom. That's what it means to pray for justice. So this is a very important parable. On the heels of the second coming, this is tied into it. This is eschatological. This is the end times. You ready? Okay, we're going to head out into some deep water, I promise. Let our nets down for a catch. Number one, what's the contrast? Jesus wants us to see a contrast. We use this argument often in Scripture. It's called from the lesser, excuse me, to the greater. What does that mean? Often on Father's Day, we'll use the term, if, heaven, if earthly fathers will do this for their children, how much more will your heavenly father do this for you? That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Well, that's what's happening here. There's an argument from the lesser, the really bad judge, to the greater, the really good judge. And if the really bad judge does something actually good, how much more will the good judge do? So you understand the flow? So there's a contrast. Ready? Let's take a look. In verse 2. This is important. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. What's happening here? This is, this is important today in this cultural context. In that culture, what kind of culture did they live in? They lived in an honor-shame culture. So imagine, anybody ever grow up? You ever hear these words growing up? Any of the children now today maybe hear it? I don't know. But I grew up in a house where my mother would often say, shame on you, Tommy. You ever heard that? Well, there was a time where that actually meant something. Imagine saying that now today in this cultural context. There's no shame. Why? We no longer live in an honor-shame society. It doesn't exist. There's nothing shameful anymore. There's no sense of guilt or, or sin or shame. But in this culture, there's a sense of, of shame. This is an honor-shame. And we have cultures today that are still honor-shame cultures, yes? But for this guy, he has no shame. None. And he says, I, 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 I don't care about God or man. Whoa. But now, look at verse 4. 
But even though I don't fear God or care about men, now, notice what he does. Here's, here's the contrast. Yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't wear me out with her coming. Right, parents, you ever deal with that with your kids? Right, I remember taking, oh, the tank was the worst at the grocery store. And you get close to that checkout line, and he'd just wear you out. Dad, I need this. I need, no, you don't need it. No, you don't. Dad, I need. No, you don't. You want it. Okay, Dad, I want it. I want it. I want it. And just finding it, you're wearing me out. Fine, we'll get it. Enough. That's this guy. She's being worn out by this woman. But notice she's praying specifically, and we'll get to that. Now, ready? Contrast? Here we go. Seven and eight. Then we're going to go to Luke 1. Seven and eight in Luke 1. I'll show you why Luke 1 in a moment. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Who are his chosen ones? You. All those who are in Christ. Right? What does Jesus say? I chose you. You didn't choose me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who cry out to him day and night. Uh Uh-oh. For what? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. Let's unpack a few things. See the word quickly? You cannot interpret that from your perspective. Why? Well, quickly depends on who you are. Quickly for me is yesterday, right? But quickly from God obviously isn't 2,000 years, right? Because Jesus hasn't returned. So you have to have a God perspective on this stuff. You have to be careful. So quickly to God, a day is 1,000 years to God. 1,000 years is a... So this is God's perspective, okay? We clear? But now there's something else here. He's patient towards sinners, but he's not ambivalent towards sin. So justice is coming. There's a promised end day where history ends and Jesus returns. And this woman is praying for that. Yes, she's pleading a case, an earthly case, a temporal case. She's pleading, but it's pointing to a much deeper point that Jesus is making. That the justice that we cry out for here and now is ultimately coming when the judge returns and all of his enemies get put under his feet. So this is very important that we understand what's going on. So now we have to go back to Luke 1, okay, and take a look. We can go to other passages, but sometimes if I can stay in the book, I stay in the book. So we'll go to Luke 1. Take a look at now. This is, this, is, this is the very beginning now. Jesus has been promised. Jesus has come. This is Zechariah, okay? And this is what he says. Blessed be the Lord God, for he has visited. Will not God visit and make all things right? Thus cried the prophets. Will he not visit? Of course he will. So now he has visited and redeemed his people. But you've got to remember, there's, there's two visits. It's not just one. To, here it is. To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What does that mean? Do you know why God is bound? Not because we bound him, but because he bound himself. He made a promise. In the eternal counsel of the triune God, he made a promise to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he was coming after you. And you couldn't mess it up. Then in the unfolding plan of redemption that we see in the Old Testament, he makes the promise to Abraham, the father of the faith. This is covenantal. In our premarital coaching that, we, that I do with all those who are ready to get married, we talk about it, right? We, we, right? We, we talk about it. 
Chelsea's in it with, with Chris, and we're working them through, and we talk about this is not a contract. This is a covenant. Aaron, you remember. You, remember, you, you guys remember. This is, a, this is a covenant. A promise that God has made. This is a promise you're making before God and witnesses. This is not a contract that you sign. So, so, so everything that we do, we have to see it in light of a covenantal promise. And it changes everything. That's why we don't go into marriages with prenuptials. And, and that there's, we don't do those things. You're, you're marrying. There's three people involved in marriage. The husband and the wife and, and, and God. And that's why it's important to understand the covenant. So here's the covenant from the deeper perspective as far as the church. That he swore to our father to grant us that we, being, de- being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So what's the ultimate prayer? That you will be freed ultimately from all of your enemies. And that's coming. And Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death on the cross in his first coming, and he's coming back to finish what he started. Okay? So here's the contrast. Ready? There's an unjust judge who acts contrary. Don't miss these words. He acts contrary to his character for self-preservation. Why does, why, why does he give the woman justice? To preserve himself. She's wearing him out. Just like I would give in to tanks sometimes. It was too much. And the same for all of them. Brock and Jen and Katie, they all did the same thing. And sometimes, you do, I don't know about you, but just sometimes, Kim, just, they can have it. I had enough. You're wearing me out. So it was contrary to his character. But now look at the just judge. He acts, con- he acts consistent to his character. For what? Our preservation. See the contrast? There's the key. So there's no, Jesus isn't comparing these two and saying this one and this one and, and God, is like, God has nothing like the unjust judge. Nothing. It's a contrast. He acts out of self-preservation. I act out of your preservation. I'm here to preserve you. Okay? We good? If you remember, we've talked about it certainly in the book of Romans and we've used the acrostic tulip if you're, if you're in the Reformed faith and you really understand those, those words and I'm not going to unpack all of them, but the last one, the P, just so I can tell you, on the perseverance of the saints is the way that comes out, but it was Dr. Sproul often in seminary who would constantly correct that, if you will, from this perspective. If you talk about perseverance of the saints, you, you could have a tendency to, to, to anchor that into, into your, your, your will and your effort and, and your working toward hanging on to your faith, and he said, we ought not to do that. Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work will complete it. It's more the preservation. God preserves you. Okay, so you stay in your faith, not because of your, your, your commitment to him, but because of his commitment to you. So use the picture. If you want to just use an illustration, parents walking your little children across the street, and both are holding hands. But who's really holding? Right, well, they think they're holding on. Right, For, you've got them. There's no letting them go. That's the picture of your faith. God has a hold of you, and he isn't letting you go. Once you're in Christ, you're always in Christ. You are preserved Yes, you persevere. Yes, you fight the good fight of faith and all of those things in Scripture. But you, you are preserved because Jesus preserves you. When you fall and you mess up and you do stuff you ought not to do, you can't fall fully and finally. Understand? You're His. 
So you mess it up along the way, but you're still his. Remember, Jesus didn't die to make you good. He died to make you his. And by making you his, he makes you good. But that takes a whole lifetime, right? So you still do stuff you ought not to do. So understand how this, this works. So the contrast, you've got a great judge, awesome judge, just judge, and you have this unjust guy. And yet they're both going to give justice at some level, but for the wrong, two different reasons, okay? Number two, now the comparison. Remember how many times I've said to you, if you come to the scriptures and you look at a story, what are you supposed to do with your story? You're supposed to put your story in the scripture story. So how does your story intersect with the stories in scripture? You have to look at the characters in there and you have to try to identify who are you in the story. And what did I say you never, who, who you never are in the stories when you come to the scriptures? You're never Jesus. Say Jesus. You're never Jesus. But in this story, you have two other options and I hope you're not the unjust judge. Are you? So if you know for sure you're not Jesus, you only have two choices. You're either the unjust judge, which I hope you're not, or you're the, you're the widow. Are you the widow? That's what we are. This is, a, this, is, this is a comparison. We're being compared to the widow. Why? The, the two most dependent people in all of Scripture were the orphans and the widows. So Jesus is making a point. Okay, you ready? Very deep point. Need to get this. 18.3, here's the comparison. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea. So what does that tell you? If the widow kept coming, she didn't have a man. Well, it says she's a widow. No, 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 no. We know she doesn't have a husband, but she doesn't have a man. Doesn't have a father. Doesn't have a brother. Doesn't even have a neighbor. A guy who'll step up for her and stand in the gap. She's got no one. What's that the picture of? You and me, utterly dependent upon God. And you say, well, I'm not in that kind of condition. Yes, you are. Where'd your, where'd your last breath come from? Where's the next beat of your heart come from? Well, you're completely and utterly dependent upon God. We all are. That's the point. Jesus wants us to get the comparison. We're the widow. We can't do anything without God. Okay? So let's look at the widow. It's the most vulnerable of all God's people. Both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament writers insisted they needed to be cared for. Let's look at two. Remember, I often say, old and new, it's not two testaments, it's not 66 disjointed books. It's one word from one God to one world. Yes? Let's look at that. Isaiah 1.17. This is the whole passage right here in Isaiah. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So the prophet Isaiah is telling us what? This needs to be done. And it needs to be done for all of us because we're all widows from the perspective of God that we are utterly dependent upon him. And now in the New Testament, take a look at 1 Timothy 5.5. She who is a widow left all alone has set her here. Why? If you don't see yourself utterly dependent upon God, let's say that you, 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 you live in a good life, right? You have a, you live, you're in a good station of life. You make a good living, a lot of good things going on, right? You do all these things. If you don't see yourself as a widow, then what do you miss? Look, look at after the second comma. Set her hope on God. You don't set your hope on God. Why? You're hoping in yourself, and we'll see this in a moment, what it means to prove ourselves, right? So you set your hope on, your, on yourself, your intellect, your, your discipline, your hard work, your education, your connections, and all of those. Jesus says, no, 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 no. No, you need to be dependent upon me. You need to set your hope upon me. And how do you know if you've done that? Finish the passage. Continues in supplications and prayers night and 
day. Are you in a posture of prayer? It's critical that we are. Watch this. We are the widow. We are weak and utterly dependent upon God. So here's the question. Is the witness of the widow our witness? There's the question. We're going to see something in just a moment. Hopefully it'll just make it explode off the screen for you. What is the widow praying for? Yes, she's praying for some kind of earthly justice. Somebody's wronged her and she's praying for it to be made right. But Jesus is taking us beyond that. So what's the deeper message? She's praying for the judge. The judge to come back and to make everything right. This is a mess. We're in the middle of it. Injustice is rampant everywhere and has been since the fall. Right? The firstborn murders the second. In Scripture, firstborn, that's not Adam and Eve, they were created. Firstborn, Cain, murders Abel. And we've been in a tailspin ever since. So Jesus is saying, First Thessalonians, right? Pray unceasingly. But your prayers aren't supposed to be all about you. What you want. God, meet me in my place of need. Me, 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 me. And we'll see this in just a moment. The deeper prayer for the Christian should be what? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and make everything right. Yet God is long-suffering. God is patient. Yet he's not ambivalent to sin. He's patient with the sinner. So he hasn't come yet. There's still hope for you if you're not in Christ. By way of the internet, you're watching this. God has locked you into this for a reason. The gospel is being preached. So today's a day of salvation. So God is patient with sinners, but he's not ambivalent to sin. And we'll talk about that. Ready? This is our final point. This is the cry. We've seen, we, you've seen the contrast. It's, it's an un, unmistakable contrast. You, from the Arguing from the lesser to the greater, think about the kind of judge you have. And let me, let me add this. If, if you're in Christ, guess what God no longer is for you? Your judge. Did you know that? You've lost your judge. Why? Christ was judged in your place on the cross. Now, yes, you'll still be disciplined for stuff that you do that you ought not to do, and you should be. What father doesn't discipline his children? If you don't discipline, you don't love. But you can't be judged anymore. Why? Jesus was judged in your place. But judgment is coming. And if you're not in Christ, you're going to have to stand before the bar. And we're going to take a look at what that looks like. You ready? Now, here's the cry. This is really important that we get this. Back to one and then three in 18, and, and then we'll hit a few points, okay? Then Jesus told his disciples, here, here it is, once again, a parable. Remember, this is a story that's made up. The judge is fictitious, and so is the widow. It's a story to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, pause, pause. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his, the whole audience here, but mainly his disciples. What are his disciples about to get ready to go through on the other side of the, the, the cross and the resurrection. Unimaginable persecution, right? If you look at extra-biblical writings, we only have one apostle who's crucified in Scripture or, or martyred for his faith. Not crucified, but martyred for his faith. But we have 11 of them who are martyred. Only John is uh, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. So in extra-biblical writings, they're all martyred for their faith. So what is Jesus saying? I want you to keep praying and not give up. Give up when? During the time between my first and second coming. But now, what should you be praying for? Verse 3. And there was a widow, you, 
in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, here it is, grant me justice against my adversary. What is the ultimate justice that you pray for? That God will put all of his enemies under his feet. That every evil will be, will be overturned. Every wrong will be made right. Every wound will be healed. Every broken heart will be mended. Every deep desire will be satisfied. That's the promise of the gospel. But it's only going to be completely fulfilled. You'll get tiny portions of it now, right? We're in that place of the kingdom which is already here but not yet fully consummated. So you have the now. So you have a taste of the kingdom of heaven. But you don't have it fulfilled. You still have to deal with sin, Satan, and ultimately death. But death no longer has its sting. But you deal with the loss of life. But here the prayer is, grant me justice. I want the true judge to, to come and make everything right. That's the cry. But here's the problem. You want to know what's happened in, in the church today? The prosperity preachers. They've taken this. Take, take the first verse. Jesus told the disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. You know what that means? Just keep banging on the door. You just keep banging on heaven's door, and if you bang on long enough and hard enough, you'll overcome God. If you didn't contrast the two judges in the beginning and you compared them, then you would compare them falsely and say, oh, the bad judge was overcome. He finally got worn out, so he gave in. So if we overcome God, he'll finally give in. So the prosperity preachers say, listen, if you pray long enough and hard enough and pray believing enough, you're going to get what you've asked for. How would you possibly explain the apostle Paul? Paul, not the apostle Paul. How would you explain Paul and his thorn? How would you explain that? Three times he prays for the thorn to be taken away and it doesn't get taken away. And what does God say? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He didn't get that prayer answered. Why? That wasn't God's will for his life. And you don't get all of your prayers answered. Why? It's not God's will for your life. Yet, what have we reduced God to? Take a look. This is in the contemporary church today. Look at God. What do you need? 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 Do you like that, Claire? What do you need? Three times. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Jackie, what do you need? What do you need? Katie, what do you need? Right? That, that's, the, that's the church. That's most Christians. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Constantly rubbing the genie. Rubbing the bar, Rubbing the bar, Waiting them to come out. That's not what this passage is about. There's nothing to do with that. The prayer is that Jesus would come and make everything right. That he would put all of his enemies under his feet. So if you stop at the first verse, then you forget what follows. And then you've locked yourself into a horribly thin view of sin. And the absolute desperate need we have for justice. So we'll go deeper. You ready? I told you it was coming. 18, 7, and 8 is going to clear up the whole thing. And then we'll close with a, with a great quote. Will not God... Bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? So here it is in verse 8. Here's the key. They will get justice and quickly. Remember, that's from God's perspective. But here it is. Sports fans, don't miss this. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Okay, what in the world does that mean? 
if you take it out of context, and you can make up anything you want for that. And prosperity preachers do that. But that has to be left in the context of what? The passage. And the passage in light of the chapter, and the chapter in light of the book. What is Jesus talking about? His second coming. So if Jesus is talking about his second coming, and he asks the question in verse 8, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What kind of faith is he looking for on the earth when he comes back? Those who are praying for what? His return. Do you see it? Yes, pray for your needs. You should pray unceasingly. The Bible says that. You have a right to what? Storm the gates of heaven. Come boldly before the throne of grace. But you ever ask yourself this question? When was the last time I prayed for his kingdom to come? When? And Jesus says it should be your constant and continual prayer day and night. Because there's a practical reason for that. If you continue to keep the second coming in view, living in the light of eternity, you will be able to deal with what? Evil, pain, and suffering. If you don't, you will not. And, and we're going to go deeper, okay? You ready? Here we go. Here's, here's, here's the key on faith. This is, we'll define it for you. Continually living in the light of eternity and crying out for his second coming and the justice he will bring. Okay, so now, we have a bind in our clothes. It's called the unbeliever's bind. You know what that is? The unbeliever does not want a heavenly judge, right? But they need a heavenly judge. Everyone wants justice, yes? But how do we want it? I want it, but I only want it for you, not for me. I want God to judge you, right? Everybody wants justice. All the bad stuff that you did, we don't want it for ourselves. But the unbeliever's in a bind. Has no interest in a heavenly judge, but they absolutely need one. So you might be familiar with the playwright Arthur Miller. Okay, wrote a number of plays. I'm going to give you a quote from After the Fall, 1964. He wrote Death of a Salesman in the 40s, All My Sons in the Crucible. Miller writes an autobiographical play in After the Fall, The Fall of Innocence. And the protagonist, the, 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 the main character, Quentin, is a lawyer. So my lawyers need to listen up. And in this, this play, he is arguing, arguing for judgment. But he's the judge. And he's constantly trying to prove himself. And then something happens. And this is the predicament. And Quentin represents, as an educated, contemporary man, this cultural context where they no longer need religion. They no longer need a judge who sits on the bench in heaven and hell because we're educated now. We, we don't need that stuff. That's for the dumb and ignorant people who need to hold on to those things because they're scared of things that go bump in the night. So this is the educated individual in the culture who says there's no need of religious beliefs anymore and there is no need of a judge. But watch what happens to Miller who's Quentin, in the play. For years, I looked at life like a case at law. Notice the metaphor that he's a lawyer. 
So he looks at it from a lawyer's perspective. A series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart. Then what a good lover. Then a good father. Finally, how wise or powerful. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned a verdict. Anyway, I think now that my disaster really began, here's the key line in the entire play, when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. And that is exactly what the unbeliever must deal with every moment of every day. Pointless litigation before an empty bench. If there is no judge, who determines what's right or wrong? You do. If there's no judge, who determines what's good or evil? You do. Who decides whether an accomplishment is noble or worthy? or You do. So your entire existence is rooted in the fact that you have to continually prove yourself to yourself and to your audience, your friends and your family. And, and what does Quinton, what does Miller say through Quinton in the play? I was looking to be justified or even condemned. I didn't care. I just needed a verdict. I needed to know that there was some kind of judge, but there wasn't. So in his life and in his mind, there is no judge. But what if there is? What if he's wrong? Look at it this way. If there is... If there is no judge, evil wins. Life is pointless. You should be living in utter despair. I ask contemporary educated individuals why they don't live in utter despair if they don't believe in a judge. And you want to know the reason why? They've never thought through. They've never actually thought through what it means not to have a judge on the bench. Because evil wins. Life is pointless. You believe we end in annihilation and it's over. So what difference does it make how we live? And it's led to unimaginable atrocities, right, throughout the history of mankind since the fall. Strongest of, of the, the survival of the fittest. Strong survive. You're used as long as you're useful. And when you're no longer useful, you get kicked to the curb. And then you see some of the things that have happened even in this country. Think about how many babies are being put to death. How we change the laws so that we can get a system in place that helps us with our aged parents and grandparents. When they're no longer useful, we can kind of get rid of them. Who's to decide the value of life? So if there's no judge... Evil wins. But if, if there is judgment, 
who can stand? The psalmist says, if the Lord were to count our iniquities against us, who, who would stand? So, so there's a great dilemma. No judge evil wins. Yes, judge, who could stand? Enter Jesus. For Christ has come to stand before the bar of judgment and to take the wrath of the judge. And he took that wrath on a cross for you. That's the beauty of understanding the gospel. You no longer have to prove yourself. You no longer have to justify yourself as a good father or a good mother, a good brother, a good You don't longer have to do any of that. You can put your doing down because you can trust in the work of Christ alone. There is a judge. And you don't have to stand before him. Picture it this way. You, you, you breathe your last. Just, it's my way of looking at heaven and I'm just, I'm no scholar. Just a simple way of looking at it. I try to tell the kids and you, 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 you get to the gate and the gate's opened and you're standing there and God is right before you and you're, and you hear these words. She's with me. And you look over and you see the nail-scarred hands and the wounds on his body. And he says, he's, he's mine. Enter into your rest. That's the gospel. There's a judge. But you've been judged in Christ. Come to Christ. All who are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. Put your doing down. Trust in Christ alone. And you will know from this moment forward, he who began a good work will one day complete it. And one day, you will enter into that gate. And after he says, he or she's with me, you'll hear this, well done. Well done. That's the cry of every human heart. That's why we cry for justice. That's why there has to be a judge or life has no meaning. And we live in utter despair. Come to Christ. Come now. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone here or anyone by way of the internet who has never surrendered control to Christ, give the gift of repentance and faith. Raise them from death to life. And then give them the confident assurance that he who began a good work will complete it. That nothing will ever separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Oh God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you. Thank you that you took our place on a cross. That we might have eternal life. If there is anyone who's never prayed. Inasmuch as we're not saved by a profession of faith, but rather a possession. These words are very simple. Say them with me now. Oh God, I've heard the truth. I heard the gospel and I heard that I'm in need of a Savior. Up until today, I had a very, very thin view of sin. But I understand now that every sin separates me from you. But you have a solution and His name is Jesus Christ. 
So I cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Give me the gift of repentance and faith. I trust in Christ alone, no longer in my own works. I turn my heart to you and I turn my life over to you. And Father, for the rest of us, those who have walked many for decades, strengthen us in our faith and grow us up into Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen.